James, James was like a doctor last week. Like we came into his office, he gave us a diagnosis, and he diagnosed what? The source of our conflicts. That was chapters one through, uh, verses one through three. And what he said is at the heart, in this diagnosis, at the heart of our conflicts is our passions that wage within us, our desires, evil desires or inordinate desires, those things that war, and this is why we are fighting. So we, we stopped uh, pointing fingers at other people, blaming our situation, blaming uh, uh, other people, blaming our, our, our childhood. Now, those are influential. Those are formative, yes, but the cause of our conflict is the desires within us, particularly when desires become demands. And so we said external conflicts all stem from the internal conflict with us. Meaning fights with others stem from the fight within ourselves, these desires. And then moving to verse 4, he turns from doctor to prophet. He gives this diagnostic kind of, here's this exam, this is what's going on with you. And then prophetically says, here's a rebuke. And so he moves from diagnosis to a weighty rebuke. Verse 4, look at it with me. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. This should be a bit surprising to you because up to this point, multiple times, James has called these Christians, dear brothers and sisters, beloved brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters. Now he says, you adulterous people, you are committing adultery on God. You're cheating on your faithful husband. God has caught you in bed cheating with this idolatrous world. Now this, this friendship of the world with the world is not saying like befriending or being friends with non-Christians. What this is saying is this intimate relationship with the world's values and idols. That's what he's talking about. This friendship with the world. Now I told you previously that this section is the the culmination of the book. It, it's, it gets to the climax of the story, kind of the big story of what he's telling or, or just the climax of the book. And then chapter five, just kind of, here's some implications of this. But here you get to, well, what's the culmination? Well, the culmination is you're following the world's values and the world's gods. Well, how are they doing that? Well, just think with me. The, the, the logic and the case that he's been making. In chapter two, he said they're showing favoritism and discrimination against people. In chapter three, he states they're speaking negatively of others, right? The whole chapter on the tongue, on our speech. In chapter three, he also says that they're exhibiting bitter envy and selfish ambition. And then chapter four, the first three verses, he's saying they're pursuing their own self-destructive, selfish desires. And so with all those, I think some of us would be like, is that really friendship with the world? Those four like behaviors, those four things that he's called out to this point. And James is saying, yes, he's raising the stakes. These aren't just some bad things that we've done. These aren't just a few mistakes we've made. This conflict and this uh, uh, action from chapter two to chapter four is spiritual adultery. That's what he's saying. So we need this warning to feel the weight of this rebuke. Because like James's original audience, we are ninjas at minimizing our sin. 
Like we've spent, we, we're pros. We're Malcolm Gladwell, 10,000 hours. We've put 10,000 hours in minimizing our sin. Now, I'm going to talk about this tonight at, at Redemption Groups. And so this kind of spurred me on, but I'm just going to share it with all of this this morning. Because I want all of us to consider how do we deal wrongly with our sin? Number one, I'm going to give you some categories to think through. One, sin minimizers. These people, us, are blind to the reality of our worst. And so we convince ourselves that our sin's not that bad. It didn't really hurt anybody. It's just my thing. It doesn't affect anyone else. Or it's justified because what others have done. So they did this to me, so I sin back. But it's not really that big of a deal because what they did to me is much bigger than what I did to them. What you'll find in all four of these categories is the all end with the same outcome. So if you minimize your sin, you make it real small. Small sin cheapens Christ's death on the cross. Why does he need to die in your place if your sin's not that bad? It's not that big. Like if you just need to make an apology, then that should be it. That It's done. It's just a mistake. Just say, oh, I'm sorry, I messed up. And they, the other person tells you, it's okay. And then just move on. Right? We really cheapen the a, a massive amount of what Christ did on the cross in our place for us. Cornelius Plantinga pushes it harder, and this was back in the day. This isn't yesterday. So just think about even his cultural context and what he's thinking about. He says, the awareness of sin used to be our shadow. Christians hated sin, feared it, fled from it, grieved over it. Some of our grandparents agonized over their sins. A man who lost his temper might wonder whether he should still go to Holy Communion. A woman who for years envied her more attractive, intelligent sister might wonder if this sin threatened her very salvation. But the shadow has dimmed. Nowadays, the accusation you have sin is often said with a grin and with a tone that signals an inside choke. At one time, this accusation still had the power to jolt people. Meaning, we've all become ninjas at minimizing our sin. Really good. And making it real small that we can deal with it. We don't need Jesus. Two, some of us are sin atoners. So we try to work it off. We try to pay for it ourselves. So we do things. Respond with like, I'll pray harder. I'll go to church more. I'll read more. I'll serve anywhere I can. But again, if 2 Corinthians 5.20 said that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, if you can pay for your sin, then you don't need Jesus. If, if he paid for 90% of your sin and you need to pay off the remaining 10 per sin, then it's not by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's his works plus your works. That equals your salvation. And so paying off your sin, again, cheapens Christ's death on the cross. So this is very practical in how you deal with, think about, address your sin and what you're communicating that into your Savior. So our sin, James is saying, if he's going to say, you adulterous people, he's saying, our sin isn't small and we can't pay for it. We're committing spiritual adultery. Now this isn't original to James. James is picking up Old Testament language. Isaiah 54, 5 through 6, 
Indeed, your husband is your maker. His name is the Lord of armies. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and wounded in spirit, a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. God is our husband. If you're a Christian, if you put your faith in Jesus, if, if God's given you a new heart, made you born again, alive, you are the people of God, collectively the wife of God, and he's our perfect groom. So our sin against him isn't small or, or such in a way that we can pay for it. Our sin is spiritual adultery, cosmic betrayal against him. Not enough? Jeremiah 3.20. However, as a woman may betray her lover, so you have betrayed me, house of Israel. This is the Lord's declaration. Or the whole book of Hosea. Hosea 2, just to make it succinct, because I can't read the whole book right moment, this moment. Hosea 2, God claims his people have been unfaithful, going after the lovers, bells and other false gods. Jesus picks up this in Matthew 12 and 16. To those that were rejecting him, do you know what he said? Wicked and adulterous generation. So this is a weighty rebuke. It is. Your sin isn't merely bad behavior. It's spiritual adultery. We've cheated on our faithful husband. And who is he? Who is this faithful husband? He's a jealous God. Look at verse 5. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says, the spirit he may to dwell in us envies intensely? Now, the original language is hard to translate here. And so if you have a different translation, it's going to say a few different things because translators have to make uh, uh, some choices on, on how they're going to uh, translate this into English. But based upon this context of what I just said with the, you adulterous people and Old Testament teaching, because he says the scripture says, clearly we're saying, James is saying, that God is a jealous God. How do I get this? Well, what does the scripture say? So I just told you that he's our husband from the Old Testament. Well, what else does the Old Testament reveal to us? Exodus 24, God says, do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or in the earth below or in the waters underneath. Do not bow down and worship to them and do not serve them. Why? See the four reasons? That's four I, four is to give you the answer to your why question. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. That's why. Exodus 34. Instead, you must tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, chop down their Asherah poles, because the Lord is jealous for his reputation. You are never to bow down to another God. He is a jealous God. All right, anything else beyond Exodus? Yeah, Zechariah 8. The Lord of armies says this, I'm extremely jealous for Zion. 
I am jealous for her with great wrath. God is a jealous husband. He is a husband zealous for his exclusive relationship with his wife. He has an exclusive claim on our worship and supreme love. And so him being a jealous God means he wants your whole being, your love, your thoughts, your actions. He is so for his glory and your joy that he jealously desires you. Because as his people, for us to give ourselves to any lesser joy is to diminish his glory and to steal our own joy, to forfeit our own joy. To give ourselves to a lesser being, a lesser God, and counterfeit idol is to diminish his supreme glory and to kill, forfeit our own joy. Joel Beakey adds on this idea of jealousy. He says, this picture of jealousy reveals the infinitely intense energy of God's affection as he dwells with his people. Infinitely intense energy. We can define God's jealousy as his limitless, fervent zeal to glorify himself in the lives of his people. And so you might wrestle with this, right? Because Sometimes when the Bible talks about jealousy, it's talking about sinful jealousy from person to person. But God is righteous in his jealousy. You know why? He has no rivals. Jealousy gets really twisted when you have a rival. Holy jealousy is perfect and pure because he has no rivals. What he's saying is, you are giving yourself to something much lesser, and it's going to destroy you because you become what you worship. And if you worship that idol, it's going to deform you, dehumanize you. The only way to grow into true humanship, to have human flourishing, is to behold and worship the faithful husband, your God. He has no rivals. No one compares to him. He's our true bridegroom. And so this, this should give us like, the, we feel the weight of this rebuke, but also just moving forward should give us a, a godly fear of committing spiritual adultery on our husband by, by giving ourselves to this world, to the world's values, to the world's idols, by giving it our hearts. Because this is like a husband catching his wife in bed with a former domineering and cruel boyfriend. She's committing adultery with a terrible lover compared to her husband. Because God is the faithful husband, real and glorious, the supreme being, the ultimate husband and lover. Can you find anyone more generous and gracious than the father? more merciful and honest than God, your husband, more gentle and caring, more providing and leading? No. And so in all our evil desires and inordinate desires in our conduct, James is rebuking us saying, we've committed spiritual adultery against God. We're unfaithful lovers, cheating, 
betraying, running into the arms of false gods. But, but I always I feel an objection when we get to this point. It may not be accurate, but I just feel like this an objection of, <clears throat> I don't worship Baal or the Asherah or the poles of Asherah. Like, I don't go to those places, Right? One way to get defensive and resist this rebuke is to stiff arm and make a lot of distance between you and the people of the Old Testament or you and the people in the New Testament. So yeah, I, I don't have a little sculpture of a bell in my house. I doubt you do too. Good, we agree. But those were the typical idols in the Old Testament. What are the typical titles in our time, in our region? Materialism, fame, comfort, the American dream. The American dream is essentially the motto of the American God. Security and control, approval. So you, you can't push back on this and say, no, no, no bell for me. No, you, 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 I think the spirit is pushing into you and saying, yeah, no bell, but you cheat on God with these counterfeit idols. They might not be little sculptures, but they're what the Old Testament calls idols of the heart. So don't resist and get defensive to this rebuke because I think it's accurate as well as I think it's God's kindness to us. God's kindness to us. This rebuke is to convict us of our sin, to see our sin as God sees it, to agree with God about this spiritual adultery this cosmic betrayal that it is, and to be pained to the heart with godly grief. Because we've betrayed him, been unfaithful to him, we've been caught with other gods. Your sin, my sin, is always ultimately against God. You sin against your child, you sin against your spouse, you sin against your coworker, Yes, you did. But ultimately, it's against God. And so allow this rebuke to do the good work it's here for. It's here to lead you to repentance. In James, it, in the next few verses, in verse 9, James tells us about this godly grief. He, he doesn't tell us about it, he just describes it. This is what he says in verse 9. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Unfaithful wife, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. That's godly grief. Worldly sorrow is the counterfeit. And people like us, we know enough about the Bible that we know we need to look repentant and the problem is we have worldly sorrow because we like to look more repentant than we actually want to be repentant. And so we have this worldly sorrow over our sin. This godly grief, we're, we're not, we don't have this godly grief, we have this worldly sorrow which is just being bummed. 
We're kind of bummed about this. We're bummed about the consequences of this. Maybe broken trust. Maybe there's going to be discipline. Maybe we're going to lose some things. We're just bummed about the consequences of our sin. Not grieving, mourning over our sin against God. Worldly sorrow also looks like being bummed because you've fallen short of your own self-idealized image. And so you have this high standard for yourself and you didn't meet it, so that's what you're bummed about. You're not bummed against cheating on your faithful husband. You're bummed that you you didn't meet your own standard. That's worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is also being bummed because you look bad in the eyes of others. You, you had this image that you presented to others and now it's exposed. That's what you're sorrowful for. That's what you're grieving over. Worldly sorrow is also being bummed about being caught. That's worldly sorrow. Godly grief generally, genuinely mourns our sin against God. And so, what sin must you stop minimizing and allow the Spirit of God to rebuke you this morning? Where is he convicting you? We are adulterous. God is jealous. At this point, I feel like, what hope do we have? He's a jealous God, and he's a gracious God. Look at verse 6. But God gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So unfaithful wife, his grace is greater than your sin, greater than your adultery. He still wants you. His love for you is unmerited, steadfast, ferocious, unfailing. Your unfaithfulness will never affect him or cause him to be unfaithful. He's not the betrayed spouse who then turns around and commits adultery to get back at you in vengeance or revenge. No, his Unmerited favor is unmerited. You didn't earn his favor, and you can't outsin it. His grace is greater. He still wants you. This reality should humble us that God's grace is greater of how we are more sinful than we think we are and more loved than we can imagine. This should humble us that his grace is greater. So I gave you the the two kind of categories of sin earlier, sin minimizer and sin atoner. Other categories need to hear what I just said, what James just said, his Grace is greater. So third category. This is maybe how you relate to your sin. You're an unforgivable sinner. Meaning 
your sin is too big. You can't be forgiven. So you think, I'm too bad. I've hurt too many people. I can't live with myself. I, I can't forgive myself. Judging our sin cheapens Christ's death on the cross. What you're saying is that you've outpunted Jesus' love for you. That you're too much for him. Or you've become the standard where what you ultimately need is your forgiveness instead of your sin isn't against you. And you don't have the power to forgive yourself. What you need is to be forgiven by the standard, the judge, the one who can genuinely cleanse you and forgive you. Or maybe it's the fourth one, the unforgiving victim. This is heavy, but some of us feel like the sin against us is too great. We think and say things like, my perpetrator needs to suffer. The hurt is too bad to forgive. To forgive is to forget, and I can't forget. Or we think wrongly that to forgive is to condone. And so I'll, I'll honestly admit, forgiveness is costly. The Father's forgiveness to you came at the cost of His Son being sent for this terrible place where he becomes sin, takes on our sin. And he cries out from the cross to the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This forgiveness comes at a great cost. But us refusing to forgive someone for the, after the forgiveness that we received from the Father, again, cheapens Christ's death on the cross. We're like the person who owed the, the master $10 and he forgave a million dollars and he forgave us and then we go choke out the person that owes us 10. We're again, I think, minimizing our sin against God and maximizing the sin against us. So as Ephesians 4.32 says, we forgive because we've been forgiven. His grace is greater than your sin, and his grace is greater than the sin done, done against you. So what, what's been done against you doesn't define you. His grace to you is what defines you. You may feel dirty, worthless, have a lot of doubt, insecurity, maybe find some identity in this, uh, what has been done to you, but ultimately what's been done to you is that you've been made a new creation by your faithful husband pulled into his family, married, and declared righteous, like you're wearing white on your wedding day because of him. Sin, your own, sin done against you, washed from you, taken from you, and you're clothed in white, bright, white righteousness of Christ. His grace is greater. His grace humbles us. So I want to say it again. We are more sinful than we think we are. But he loves us more than we can imagine. And so I told you this rebuke was kindness because his kindness leads us to repentance. And so knowing his grace is greater, 
we can even understand that rebuke as kindness. And then come to him knowing that he's poised to forgive. He's poised to receive us, to welcome us. He's like the son of the a prodigal. He's like the father of the prodigal son that, that is not like just standing aloof, looking out the window, a little bit judgmental and angry as his prodigal son comes down the road. No, he jumps out, kicks the door open, and runs to his son to greet him with a warm hug. That that's his grace to you, coming after you. And so we, we can move towards him in this. That his grace woos us to, yes, feel the godly grief over our sin and then confess, him to, confess it to him for what it is. It's spiritual adultery. But his grace also woos us to turn away from our false lovers, our counterfeit gods, and turn to the one who truly knows us and fully loves us. So we go to him this morning. We go to him in prayer to confess our sins, to experience his forgiveness, and to ask him, ask the Spirit to help us and change us and grow us. That, that, that's this pointed conversation that you need to have with your faithful husband this morning. But let me nuance this a bit, because I told you I wanted to get in some conflict with us. I don't want to get in conflict with you. I want to talk about conflict with you. We will get in conflict, though. It's a promise <laughs> or a threat. Uh, I want to talk about conflict with us. Like, if this is true, we need to think about conflict with each other. How does this, how does this work out? So a after you move towards God... You then move towards others to confess your sin against them, to, to reconcile them. Like, I'm convicted this week that when my boys hurt each other, sin against each other, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm quick to, like, get them together for them to confess and ask for forgiveness and reconcile. But there's something massively missing in that typical, regular rhythm that we have. God. God is missing. What they first need to do is to move vertically before they move horizontally, and that's true for all of us. We need to go to God first, to confess our sins to God first, to ask for his forgiveness first, to experience it first before we to move to other people, and that, that's what also my kids need, your kids need. So, so how do we go about this in conflict with others? Well, Jesus helps tremendously. Matthew 7, Jesus says this. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and there's a beam of wood in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, take the beam of wood out of your eye. First, first take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. So, so Jesus is speaking and, and giving this uh, imagery of a two-by-four coming out of your eye and like a little piece of toothpick on the other person's eye. 
And Jesus is speaking in this of, of, if you know the whole context, he's speaking of the sinful words and actions of us that render us hypocrites. That, it, that if we criticize the sin of others, but then we have these sinful words and actions also going on, that we're hypocrites. So these, these beam of wood sins, if I can say it, also called plank, the plank sins, uh, four by four sins, that's a, let's say two by four, that'll, that'll keep you, stay there. These two by four sins, they're observable by others. There are sinful words and actions. And so you take these two together. And James in the first three verses of chapter four says that our conflicts stem from the desires within us that are raging. And then you take Jesus, and Jesus tells us that in our conflict, we are to confess our sinful words and actions to the other person. Now, let's make this clear so you get a bit robust view of this. Sins of commission and omission. And I want to highlight that because uh, some of us stay away from sins of commission. And so when we get in a conflict, we never pull the beam out of our own eye. Because we're like, I didn't do anything wrong. Do you know what the difference is, commission and omission? I'll tell you. Commission sins involve words or actions that I say or do, but I should not say or do. Right? Omission sins involve words or actions that I do not say or do, but should. Commission sins, I yell harshly at my wife. Right? I shouldn't do that. I did do it. Omission, I fail to encourage her. See it? So we're talking about both and. In our sinful words and actions, we're talking about sins of commission and omission. And so in conflict, what Jesus is getting at, and also James, clearly, when he says first, is that we are to take a me first approach. Highlight this in your journal. It's the only time I'm ever going to tell you that. Okay? There's only one time in your life that I'll tell you you should take a me first approach, and it's right here. It's in your conflict. Because you need to pull the beam out of your eye before you move toward the other person and address their speck. Robert Jones, in his book, Pursuing Peace, helps with this. He, he says, we need to ask ourselves three questions to consider this in our conflict. Three questions. He says, what sinful words or actions did I say or do before our conflict that helped provoke or set the stage for it. So I need to think about it. I need to ask this. Okay? Let's actually take a me-first approach and to unlodge this two-by-four in my eye. What simple words or actions did I say or do before our conflict that helped provoke or set the stage for it? Second, what were my sins of commission and omission during the heat of our conflict? Isn't that where a lot of conflict exacerbates, right? Do you guys know some of uh, your craziest fights starts with some of the smallest things? Like, you're talking about the, the ordering of how the dishes fit in the dishwasher, and then you're talking about your relationship with your mom. And you're like, where did we get this? How do we get to these, these insults and this name calling? What? We were here. We were, it's so small, we were here, but now we're here. Like, what happened? 
happens is things in the midst of our conflict that escalate, exacerbate, prolong it. Three, what beam of wood sins did I evidence after the conflict that have helped keep it alive and unresolved? I think all of us need to hear this, but I'll just I'll, I'll, I'll speak to one group. Husbands, you might not have started this conflict, but your sinful responses may have escalated it and extended it. Sometimes us get so focused uh, of who's right and who's wrong and who started this that we make it all about that. And we totally gloss over how we prolonged this conflict and don't acknowledge and own and confess of our sinful responses in this conflict. Now, in James, no, in Jesus' economy, he's messing with us. He's messing with us. Because he's saying, whether you contributed 80% to the conflict or 1%, you start with yourself. That messes with us. Because we're such like, tit for tad, I was only 20%, so we need to address all your 80%. That's all you stuff. Let's go with that. Like we're, we're such like uh, a democracy in our conflict. Of like more than 50%, that's a majority. So majority of the problem is you. So let's talk about you. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Even if it's 1% that you contribute to the problem, you need to pay attention to 100% of your 1%. That's a beam of wood in your eye. Address it first. Then, even in that, you can move towards others afterwards and minister to them rightly with, without self-righteousness or judgment. Robert Jones says it this way. Whew, he asks it this way. Whose sins bother you more, your sins or the other person's? Sounded like a collective groan. It was subtle, but I heard it. Just me. In humility, you are more bothered by your sin. In self-righteousness and judgmentalism, you're more bothered with their sin. In When Sinners Say I Do, which is a wonderful book by Dave Harvey, a premarital counseling, he recommends that before we inspect ourselves, we should suspect ourselves. Instead of coming to tense relationships with the presumption of innocence, I know this feels weird, it's America, right? Law and order. Innocent till proven guilty. Well, just because it's America doesn't mean it's biblical. Okay? In the court system, it works fine. I'm sorry, that's great. I'm not advocating for something to change there. I'm talking about don't transfer that into your personal life. Just listen to Dave. I'll stop commenting on it. Instead of coming to tense relationships with a presumption of innocence, I should assume in a relational conflict that I likely sinned in some way. And if I'm later proved wrong, that's fine. With an assumption of probable guilt, probable guilt, I'm more apt to vigorously examine myself. This does not mean that I'm the only or primary contributor to a conflict. It does mean that I've likely contributed to the problem and I need to see how. So we're, we're going to talk more about confessing to others next week. But as we've seen today, 
we must honestly see and own our own spiritual adultery against God and our sin against others. That we take this me-first approach in the beam of wood that's in our eye, in the, uh, uh, the sin in the, that started or contributed to the conflict that we have with other people. And so in this first, just this morning, I, I want you to have a pointed conversation with your faithful husband. The zealous God who is infinitely for his glory and your joy that we would confess our inordinate desires, our evil desires, and our sinful words and actions to him. And then believe the gospel promises of God's forgiveness for you in Jesus. Experience that forgiveness this morning. It's on the dark backdrop of your spiritual adultery that the bright, shining star of God's forgiveness really pops. This is how bad it was, but this is how good he is. And so we could experience his forgiveness this morning. He still wants us. He's for us. It's not going to make him unfaithful. He still loves and moves towards us. And so we can turn to him knowing he's gracious, so we can run to him, talk to him about this, confess this to him, and enjoy him and worship him for who he is, what he has done, and who he is to us. And so that's what I'm inviting us to this morning, to have a pointed conversation to our faithful husband in prayer. I'll kick it off. Father, like the book of common prayer, I have sinned against you in word, deed, and action, in what I have said, what I have done and what I've not said and what I've not done. And in that general true prayer for all of us, I pray that you'd lead us to be specific on our desires and our words and our actions in this, that the language of spiritual adultery would not be condemnation, vague, ambiguous, murky condemnation, but you would cut to our hearts specifically in kindness to expose where we have sinned so that we can turn to you specifically and graciously by the power of the gospel. And then like a marriage restored I pray that there be joyful glad zealous affection for you in our singing in our response infatuated with you amazed awestruck so grateful that you would take us back Christ's name.